Matthew chapter 9, and I want to start reading in verse 18. We're going to look at three at the second half of, of Matthew 9. Matthew 9 has six separate accounts of miracles. Some of them, uh, the account is a co- combination of two miracles, and we'll see that. So uh, I want to start by looking at verse 18, and this section shows Jesus raising a dead girl from the grave and also healing a sick woman. And so the account of Jesus um, going to raise the dead girl has two sections, and then tucked between the two sections are the account of this woman. So let's pick it up, Matthew 9 and verse 18. We'll read down through 26. It says this. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler. We know from another passage that his name is Jairus. There came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land." One of the things we have with, and we've mentioned this in some of the earlier miracles and accounts, we have what's often called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they have a lot of similar accounts of miracles. John has unique miracles that he mentions that some of the others don't. They're a little bit of overlap. But Mark and Luke, with this account, they mention something that it's not a discrepancy, but here it says that the ruler of the synagogue came here just as a ruler. We know he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's a Jewish man named Jairus. And he comes and he comes to Jesus. In Mark and Luke, it says that he came and says, my daughter is sick. She's right at the point of death. And so Jesus is going to go. And as Jesus is going, someone else comes from the house and says, by the way, your daughter has passed away. So let's just move on. And, And they say to him, trouble not the master anymore. Uh, that part of the accounts here, it just combines those two, those two accounts. Basically what happened is um, he comes and asks for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. When he gets news, they say, it's too late. Just move on. But in his mind, it's not too late. He believes that Jesus could come and heal his daughter, but he also believes that Jesus can come and raise his daughter from the dead. And so he continues to ask. And so that second section is what Matthew records, where he comes and says, My daughter is even now dead, but come, and I know, I believe, I know that if you come, that she shall, uh, she shall live, is the phrase he uses. Uh, notice both the, the man and the woman that come to Jesus, they use the word shall. He says in verse 18, Lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. There's no doubt in his mind. And then the woman, down in verse 21, she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. These are two people that had probably never met Jesus before, maybe had never seen Jesus do anything before, but had heard that he could do miracles. And so they are convinced before they even, they didn't have to, size up the situation. You know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get there and then I'll see Jesus. I'll meet him. I'll see how he responds to me. And then I'll evaluate whether or not I think he can do this miracle. They just both come knowing that if you do the the work, if you say the word, it shall be done. And they had great faith. Again, we're going to talk about faith uh, as we go through these passages. But notice uh, that God is compiling accounts of people coming to Jesus with faith 
that he's able to, to solve their problems and to handle what they do. So Jesus, in verse 24, he's speaking about the girl and he says, she is not dead, but she is sleeping. Now, she obviously was dead. The Bible says she was dead. Everyone agreed that she was dead, but Jesus says she's sleeping. It's not that medically there was a discrepancy. It's not a matter of semantics. Jesus uses the word sleep because he knows that she is going to shortly be raised from the dead. So he might as well just call it, when you go to sleep, you go to sleep and you wake up. This girl died, but she's going to wake up. And so he calls the word sleep. Uh, it's also called, Jesus also uses the word sleep when Lazarus died in John 11, because he knew he was about to raise him and he, he was teaching his disciples something there. Uh, he said, Lazarus is asleep. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, we should just let him sleep because the sleep will do him good. And he says, okay, let me put it plainly. Lazarus is dead. Uh, and notice that Jesus could have, remember when the centurion came and his child was sick? He says, you don't even have to come. Just say the word and my child should be healed. Jesus could have done that on this day. At first, when the man comes and says, my daughter is sick, Jesus could have said, oh, she's sick. Okay, she's healed now. He could have healed her before she died, but instead he waits and lets her die so that he can do an even greater miracle in raising her from the dead. That's what Jesus did with Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, it says, therefore, in John 11, verses 2 or 3, somewhere in there. Therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. He's like, Jesus, it's urgent. You have to come. Oh, he's sick? Okay. I think I'll wait a couple of days. Like, was Jesus a teenage boy that we didn't know about? You tell a teenage boy to do something, he says, oh, I'll wait and do it in a couple of days. No, that's not what was happening. Jesus waited on purpose, and he said to his disciples, I'm glad... For your sakes, I was not there so that you may believe. Now you're going to see a greater miracle of resurrection and it's going to help your faith. And I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here. So he goes, it's not that he's just, oh, she's sick. Okay, I'm going to come. Oh, it was that serious? She, oh, I should have run. I should have gone faster. He's taking his time. He know he could have healed her at any moment, but he allows her to die so that he could do a greater miracle. So many times we have a problem and we want Jesus to do it now and we can't understand why he hasn't fixed our problems yet. And by the way, it's not always this exact scenario. It's not always that he wants the problem to get worse so that then he can fix it and do a greater work. But sometimes that is the issue. And so we, need, we just need to let God be God. Let Jesus be Jesus and not tell him when he has to do it, what he has to do exactly. But God often will wait and he'll allow the problem. By the way, why did the girl get sick in the first place? Because God allowed her to get sick. It's not that God wanted her to be well the whole time and the devil made her sick. And oh, this sickness is against the will of God. The sickness was part of God's will the whole time. The death was part of God's will. And then the resurrection was part of God's will. So Jesus is in charge of the whole universe running things. Um, and the people, when he says that in verse 24, she's not dead, she's just asleep. The people laughed him to scorn. You have no idea what you're talking about. We've done the medical analysis and she's dead. You have no idea what you're talking about. They laugh in the scorn. And because they, by the way, there's a combination. They don't just laugh because he's wrong. He's going to do something and they don't believe that he can do anything at this point. That's part of what's happening. These people are scorners. They, they lack faith. And so they miss out on seeing what's going to happen. It says in the next verse, verse 25, that the people were put forth. Now, there's so many times that Jesus does miracles right there in front of everyone. On this day, everyone had to go, except in the other passage it explains, but the girl's parents. Why did the girl's parents get to stay in there? They believed. This man, he said, you come. I know that if you come, she shall live. And because they had the faith, they were able to be there and witness the miracle and partake in it and see the joy and see the blessing. Other people heard about it later, but they missed out on the moment of blessing because of their unbelief. And this is common. Look at Matthew 13 and verse 58. This is going to happen later in Matthew, obviously. Jesus goes to his own town of Nazareth and he's not received well there. And it says in 
a very condemning statement about the city of Nazareth. Matthew 13, verse 58. It says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, we're going to have a balance today when we talk about faith. It's not that just because someone has faith, they will see everything they want to see and all the miracles and more. And if somebody doubts, then they will never see anything. There are times that people doubted and then Jesus did a miracle over here and then they saw it. But sometimes this is the case. God withheld miracles that he could have done, maybe even would have done. It says he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That hints to me that he would have done many mighty works there. There were people there that were sick that could have been healed, but because they didn't believe, they weren't healed. They, weren't, they didn't get to see God's blessings. And how many times are we, by the way, we don't know the answer to this. I don't think Jesus told them that, by the way. Okay, I was going to do 36 miracles here today, but you get none. He didn't say that. And he just left, and they had no idea what they missed out on. And I'm convinced of this, that we will go through life sometimes kind of blind, and then we'll find out at the judgment seat of Christ one day what could have been. We may find out what we could have accomplished for God. We may find out, uh, and I know on one hand there are no what-ifs in God's economy, but it says this sometimes in the Bible. It says about Saul, I would have established your kingdom forever. But you've rejected me, and so I've rejected you, and I'm going to choose someone that's a man after my own heart, David. And I wonder if we'll get to heaven and find out how much we missed out on. Uh, I don't want to uh, put a damper on the rest of your Christian life, but we need to know that God will bless faith, and we will see God do greater things if we will believe and, and go forward. There's often a snowball of faith, if I can put it this way, where if you have faith... Then again, I'm not, we're not talking about name it and claim it and whatever you want will automatically happen. But there is this balance in the Bible that God rewards faith. And what happens when God rewards faith? You, you sometimes will see God do great things. And what happens when you see God do great things? That will encourage your faith even more. And then you're, you'll be led to believe and led to pray more and you'll see even more and that will encourage your faith. And I hope that you're seeing a snowball effect of faith in your life between your faith and God's blessing on you because of your faith and your faith and God's blessing and your faith and God's blessing. Instead, people often see a snowball of doubt. You know, uh, I don't think God can do anything. And then they see, and I didn't perceive God do it. See, I told you. And then, and doubt snowballs in their life and gets bigger and bigger. But God wants our faith to grow. And I hope that it's like that uh, like a cartoon snowball, you know, when it's going down the hill and it's picking up people and it's picking up rocks and stuff. All of a sudden the snowball is so giant. I hope that our faith is growing like that, that people can look at us and say, wow, I want to be, I want to jump in and be part of that snowball. And maybe you bring in other people along for the ride uh, in your, in your growing faith. Uh, let's go on uh, for sake of time. Look at uh, the next section, Matthew 9 verse 27. A couple more miracles here that Jesus heals a blind man and then a mute, a man that had a demon and, and wasn't able to speak because of the demon. So verse 27, it says, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So when they call him son of David, by the way, it points to their, they believe he's the Messiah. The son of David is a title pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is as the descendant of David, that he's qualified to be their king, sit on the throne. So they, they believe, they don't just believe that he is the descendant of David. They're calling him the Messiah, so to speak here. Have mercy on us. Verse 28. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, yea, Lord, or yes. Then Touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. And of course, they didn't follow that. Verse 31, But, when, but they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. 
And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. And then a little downer on the passage. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. So as Jesus goes on, you see this all throughout his ministry, that whenever he is about to, and here, even after he does a miracle, there's a mixed response. By the way, it's not always with a miracle. Sometimes it's just with teaching. Jesus will give a certain truth, and there's a mixed response. Some people believe it. Some people are not so sure. They reject it, and they're even aggressive, even scoffers. And sometimes when Jesus is about to do a miracle, there's some people, like we just saw, oh, they laughed him to scorn, so he put them out. They missed out on the miracle. And so they, Jesus did the miracle, but because of their unbelief, they missed it. Here we see unbelief at the backside of the miracle. Jesus does a couple of miracles. In the second one, he casts, so he, first of all, he heals the two blind men. And I, I hate to, for sake of time this morning, uh, I don't want to skim over, I don't want to skip over a miracle, because every miracle represented, for, for those two blind men, that, rep- that was their whole life. Their lives were defined by the fact that they were blind. They thought about it every day. They didn't just wake up one day and, you know, life was just normal. I mean, it became normal for them. But they had to interact with their blindness every single day. So it's no light thing when Jesus took it away. Totally revolutionized their lives going forward. Um, By the way, I don't know if they were married when their eyes were opened. Were they disappointed? Was it actually worse? I'm just kidding. Uh, It's obviously a better thing that... um, I think that they were like, wow, I never knew. I've, I always felt her face, but I never knew my wife was this beautiful. And they, were, they had the time of their lives. Anyway, so Jesus healed these two blind men. And then he does another miracle and he casts out. Sometimes demon possession in the Bible would do different things. Sometimes it says there was, there was a woman that was kind of bent over. She was kind of folded up and she wasn't able to stretch out her body because a demon had had done that to her body. There are times when demons would come into people in the Bible and they would act crazy. Uh, They would be cutting themselves. They would be beating people up. They would be casting themselves into the fire a little boy had. Uh, Here, the the man wasn't able to speak. And so demons would do different things. There's no, I don't think there's necessarily a rhyme or reason, except that that the demons wanted to show themselves as powerful. They wanted to show themselves as having dominion over people, and so they would do something to them physically so people were aware of the power of these demons. I don't know how many people chalked it up to demons or how many people just thought this person has a problem. We don't know what it is, but they seem to know, and it is interesting. We're not saying that every physical problem that people have is demon possession at all. We're not saying that. I don't I don't, I'm not an authority to speak to. Have I ever seen someone that was possessed by a demon but just had a physical problem and didn't know about it? I have no idea. I'm not trying to speak that. But it is interesting how the demons would manifest themselves in different ways. So this person wasn't able to speak. And so Jesus cast, he cast out the demon. And often, so here, after the, the miracle happens, it is obvious to everyone that the miracle just happened. Because he couldn't speak and now he can speak. And because the Pharisees couldn't deny that he had done a miracle, instead they turned, you know, they often have different things. Sometimes Jesus would do a miracle on the Sabbath. And so there was a miracle, but you did it on the Sabbath. They would find fault with everything that he did. They would never just say, wow, this is a miracle. He must be from God. This is the son of God. We worship him. We accept him. They would never do that because of their pride. So they'd always nitpick in some way. And so here they decide, hmm, let's see. Okay, it was a miracle. I got it. He casts out the demon by Beelzebub. It's because of Satan, by the prince of the demons. That's how he casts out. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that today because in Matthew 12 it happens again and this, and then Jesus really addresses it. So we'll, we'll hold our comments till we get to Matthew 12. But look at a passage in Acts 4 and verse 14. The world will often deny miracles, the supernatural. They'll deny God as long as they can. Sometimes it's obvious that this is God. And so then they'll just have to shift gears. Okay, fine, it's God. But they'll have some other problem with it. And this happened in Acts 4 when the disciples were healing people. 
Acts 4, look at verse 14, and we'll read down through verse 17. This is a man that was healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. It says, And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. It's like they wanted to, but they couldn't. He wasn't healed. Well, yeah, look, he, he, was, he wasn't able to walk, and now he's jumping and leaping and praising God. He was healed. Well, how do we know he was really, maybe for the last 30 years he was just pretending. <laughs> okay, he was really a miracle. They wanted to deny it, but they couldn't. Look at verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council... They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It almost sounds sorry. We wish we could deny it, but we can't, because everyone sees it. It's obvious. Verse 17. So, since we can't deny it, we'll try to shut it off. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. So, okay, he, fine, they did a great miracle, but we're going to shut it down. Okay, you guys, no more, no more helping people. No more, no more doing miracles and changing people's lives for the better. And then, worse than that, showing how they can have eternal life through Jesus. We need to shut this down. You see, obviously, the devil's fingerprints all over this. So they wished they could deny it, but they couldn't. Um, and again, we'll, we'll talk more about Jesus' response to that accusation. Okay, you did a miracle, but you did it through the power of the devil. Jesus points out that, first of all, it doesn't even make sense that that would happen. Uh, and then second, that it, that wasn't true anyway. So a key uh, principle, we've, we've looked at these. There's one more section in Ma Matthew 9, but it's not a miracle. So as we sum up these miracles in Matthew 8 and 9, I don't know if you noticed, but a key theme that often comes to the surface is the principle of faith. Now, Jesus didn't always mention faith. He didn't always ask for faith before he would do a miracle. Because, by the way, if, someone, if Jesus heals someone of a physical problem, that doesn't mean they're going to heaven. I don't know that every single person... There, there probably was a link. I don't know for sure. Now, I don't think that people would say, hey, thanks for my miracle, but you're not the Son of God, and I'm out of here. You know, I think that... For the most part, people were not only grateful, but I think they did believe. But just because someone is healed physically doesn't mean salvation. We need to be very careful about that. Uh, but Jesus often will pull out their faith spiritually and then reward them physically for that. So I want to talk about, and by the way, let's look at it real quick, real quick in these two chapters, Matthew 8 and verse and 9. Look at Matthew 8 and verse 10. Notice how many times faith is brought out. Matthew 8, verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed. So this is when the centurion said, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and, you, and my child will be healed. Um, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And because this man had faith, Jesus did the miracle. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Look at chapter 9 and verse 2. Chapter 9 and verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. So faith is what broke through. Look at verse 22. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And then in verse 29, the two blind men, then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. So, again, there's a balance here because sometimes I've heard of people in um, like the faith healing movement or something where someone will come and say, I need to be healed. And they'll say, okay, they'll say what Jesus does right here. According to your faith, be it unto you. And they're not healed. And the people blame it on the, uh, the healer will blame it on the people saying, well, you're not healed. It's your fault. I guess your faith wasn't good enough. And that is not always God's will to heal someone. Sometimes it is, 
something God can still miraculously heal, but it's not always his will. But what a horrible thing. You know, imagine someone, they're struggling their whole life and they begin to say, maybe God could do something. And they go to a church and then they're just told, oh, not only are you have this physical problem, but you got a spiritual problem too. You have bad faith. Now, and they go home with that and now it really compounds. That'd be an awful way, uh, an awful thing to be told. Uh, but And so we're not trying to go overboard here and say that if you have faith, then any problem you ever have will be taken away. Any sickness will be healed in a moment. Anyone that's close to death will be delivered. We're not saying that. But I don't want to go the other way and discount the importance of faith. We need to believe that Jesus can do anything. And by the way, your prayer life will often be a direct reflection of your faith. What you pray for, whether or not you pray, do you believe that God can do something? If you don't believe he can do it, you're probably not going to ask him, you know, but okay, God, this this is probably not going to work, but just in case I'll go ahead and ask, can you do this? Okay. It's not going to work anyway. You think God wants to, you know, uh, James one says in verses five through seven, let not that man that doubteth think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. You know, why, why even ask? And, and you're not going to receive it without faith. So your faith will directly be borne out in your prayer life. It will be borne out in what you pray for. Do you ever pray for things that if they were to happen, could never be explained naturally? It would have to be God to do it. It would have to be even a miracle. Do you ever pray for this? Or do we have lowered expectations in prayer? Let me, you know, I, there's something I've heard that's happened dozens of times, and maybe it could be for me too. So I just want to, I'm not going to ask God for that, but I'll ask him for this. Uh, we need to not put God in the box of our limited imaginations and say and believe God can do anything. Are you asking for amazing things from God? Am I asking for amazing things from God? Because I believe that God can do amazing things. The people in these chapters, they're asking for things they've never experienced before, maybe that they've never even seen before. You know, this man that asked for Jesus to heal his daughter, to my knowledge, this is the first time that Jesus has ever healed anyone, or has ever raised anyone from the dead. He's healed, but sometimes we want to we wanna have tears of power. And by the way, there have been many people. Remember when Lazarus died? People believed Jesus could have healed him when he was alive, but now he's dead. Now it's too late, and they all gave up hope. And there are a lot of people who think, well, God can do this, but I don't know about that. And this man asked for something that he had never seen. Jesus had never done this before yet, but he had the faith to ask for it. And so God blessed him. So many times people, they want to wait until they see something. You ever talk to someone, or you ever been like that? Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. But if I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. You know, there's, there are people who give dramatic statements in the Bible. Peter. What's Peter's confession in the Bible? Is when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's often called Peter's confession. What I like to call Thomas's confession is when he says, Unless, you know, this is what he's known for. It's written down in Scripture, graven and stolen for all eternity. Unless I will see him, unless I put my finger in the nail prints in his hand. Unless I thrust my hand in his side, here's Thomas's declaration. I will not believe. Have you ever had that thought in your heart or even said it out loud? Unless this happens, I will not believe. Here's what Jesus, look at, look at that in John 20, verse 29. Here's Jesus' response to Thomas. And by the way, Jesus wasn't there when Thomas made that statement. Or was he? You know, Jesus is everywhere and he heard him. He showed up knowing that this was in Thomas's heart. And by the way, it never even says that Thomas actually, Jesus offers it. He says, here, put your finger into, into the nail prints of my hand. You can thrust your hand in my side and be not faithless but believing. He never says Thomas did it. I think he was scolded by that. It says, okay, I believe. And here's what Jesus says, verse 29. Jesus said unto him, Thomas because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. We need to let that statement, this is God himself, this is Jesus himself saying this. We need to let that statement sink down into us. Because an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
And so many, even as Christians, we can get here. God, I just won't believe. Give me a sign that you're that it's real. Give me a sign that you can actually do something. And and Jesus would say, okay, some people, if I give them a sign, will believe. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Obviously, this is true for salvation. Anybody ever seen, no man has seen God at any time. You've never seen Jesus. But we believe that he has come and he died for our sins and he rose again. And we believe that if we call on him for salvation, that he'll forgive us and save us. And blessed are we for having believed that without seeing. But if we can believe God for that, which by the way, that's kind of a, that's kind of far-fetched for some people. <laughs> for so many people. You hang your eternal soul on that truth. If we can believe God for that, can we believe him for our day-to-day things? What's, what's harder? For God to give us eternal life and a mansion and, and we inherit all things forever in heaven? Or just that he provides uh, for our needs or he helps us with our, with our physical ailments? Uh, we need to grow in our faith in this way. Often people say, both unbelievers and believers, you know, it, I, I say believers, you know, I put it in quotation marks. Uh, there are unbelieving believers. Like, I believed him for salvation, but I'm in, I'm in unbelief in this area. We're like that man. Remember, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. But there are many people, both saved and lost, that have that thought. If God would just do something physically, and if I could see it, then I would believe. But you know, that's not always the case. Uh, and I want to look at it real fast. Two passages that talk about this. Look at Luke 16, verse 30. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus that both died and went to uh, hell. They went to upper and lower Sheol. And the rich man says to Lazarus, or he says to Abraham, will you send Lazarus back from the dead? Would it be possible for him to come back from the dead and go and witness to my five brothers so that they would believe and not die and not come here into hell? And here's the answer. Luke 16, verse 30. So Abraham said, by the way, they have, they have the Bible. Let them hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets. And, and he says, but if they don't listen to the Bible, they're not going to believe uh, if someone comes back from the dead. In verse 30. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. We need to let that also sink down into our hearts. That just because you might see something, that's not automatically going to make you flip. Okay, now I believe and I'm going to follow God and everything. No, sometimes people, you could show it right to them. You could prove it, if you can use the word proof. You could demonstrate power, but there's going to be some way, like these Pharisees, some way that will explain it away. Jesus did the miracle. That didn't mean that all the Pharisees believed. They saw the miracles and their hearts were hardened. Look at one more passage about this. Revelation chapter 6. This is happening during the tribulation period. There are series of judgments that are unfolded. And here there are are seal judgments. Not like a barking seal, but... uh, (laughs) The idea is there's a title deed, a scroll that's rolled up and it's sealed with seven seals. And as the seals are broken, that God calls them sealed judgments. And each time in, in the idea is once all these seals are broken, then Jesus is reclaiming the world. He's the, the title deed to the earth, so to speak, is being reclaimed and opened. So here's the sixth seal. Revelation 6 verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. You have to say that. You can't say it five times fast. You have to say it slow. The sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. When she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain, every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is heaven and earth being turned upside down as judgments poured out on the earth. And it says that people know that it is God. This is not some random cataclysmic event. They know it's Jesus. We'll see. Look at verse 15. 
and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman. So everyone in the world, they hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. Notice here, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The world will know that it's not a random coincidence. The world will know that this is the judgment of Jesus, the Lamb. And they will say, we're sorry, we repent, we believe. No, they don't. They just say, we'd rather die. Cover us and hide us. We want to get away from him. We hate him, but they don't believe, even though he's demonstrating mighty power. Look at another uh, couple chapters later. Look at Revelation 9, verse 21. There are other, so here, there are more judgments. And by the way, it says that there are going to be demonic creatures unleashed on the earth. In this moment, these demonic creatures will kill one third of the world's population. So by the way, there's a couple times. First of all, there's a fourth of the world's population. And then of that, what is remaining, one third of that is killed. So we're talking, uh, nothing like this has ever happened. We're talking billions of people dying quickly. And when this happens by demons in very horrible, horrific ways, uh, they're scorpion tail stings and that type of thing. They're, they're killing all these people on the earth. Here's the response, Revelation 9.20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of, their, of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. So, the idea is, God, if you would just show yourself strong, just do something mighty, then everyone will believe. And God says, that's not the case because it's going to happen and they won't believe. And so God's admonition is, blessed are they that will believe without seeing. I don't have to see Jesus come and see him face to face. I don't have to see great miracles of blessing. I don't have to see great judgments occur. I don't have to see it. I will believe. Where is our faith? Uh, by the way, just for ourselves. And sometimes we, this is what our faith is for other people. Oh, I have an unbeliever. God, if you'll just do something powerful in his life so he'll believe. They're not going to automatically believe because of works of power. And thinking that, here's what it does. Thinking that discounts the power of God's word. We believe, okay, God, I know we have the Bible, but that's not good enough. I mean, I, I, I've tried it and it didn't work or I could imagine what it would be like if I said, believe the word of God, he's going to laugh at me. God, you have something better? There's nothing better than God's word. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It never says that miracles are the power of God unto salvation. Are miracles great? Yes. Are they of the Lord? Yes, he does them. But he does them to point to the Bible. God's word is the power of God unto salvation. So in your personal witnessing and in your praying for other people, pray for God's word to not return void. Pray and use God's word. You don't have to use, uh, let's see, what other good human rational arguments can I think of? No, trust in God's word. It's good enough to save you. It's good enough. It was good for my mama and it's good enough for me. You know, the old time religion. Anyway, uh, but never throw away in your mind the power of God's word and think God needs something more. Um, he's done it exactly perfectly. Never doubt. Never, never think that if God would just do something, then automatically faith would follow because that is not the case. Uh, when you prove it to them, then there's just some other explanation, some other rationalization why they, they shouldn't believe it. Okay, let's go on and finish out the chapter. Matthew 9, verse 35. Let's read 35 through 38. I've in, this section I've entitled, The Laborers Are Few. So Jesus does a lot of miracles, and still he's surrounded by unbelievers, and he says an interesting statement. Mark, uh, Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them 
because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he, and so he's talking about their spiritual blindness. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So interesting statement, by the way, interesting command that Jesus gives. He commands for his disciples and for us today to pray that God would send more laborers. Now, I would say this, and this was true in Jesus' day. I think we could call this a prophecy, that this has been true in every generation. It's true in our generation today. There's always been harvests of people that are ready, but not enough laborers, not enough people that are sharing the gospel, not enough people that are trying to bring them to Jesus. That's always been the case, and I believe it'll always be the case until Jesus comes back. When that dynamic happens, whose fault is it? Is it because Jesus didn't plan well enough? You know, he, Gabriel, I've, I've been running the numbers. We should have done a better job. I should have called more people. I think that God is perfect in who he has called, but not everyone is answering the call. And by the way, it, it, there's a snowball effect here. There are more people that God would call as believers, but they don't even believe because the people that he's called to reach them haven't. You see, there's a breakdown in this chain. But I believe that God is always doing his best to call. And yet, I'm not saying that, that he's waiting, but it's interesting that Jesus says, I want you to pray that God would send forth labors. It almost does link God sending people. He's not just sending them on his own. He's also sending based on our prayers. That if we pray more for God to send more, then he will send more. So, by the way, both ways, it's, it's our fault. It's, it's our fault for not praying. And then when God calls, it's all our fault for not taking that call and going out and, and, and laboring. So what an interesting uh, command. Let us pray. This ought to be something that we do frequently, day by day. God, send me and send, by the way, um, so many times people read Isaiah 6. Here am I, Lord. Send her. <laughs> uh, send somebody else. And we say, I recognize the need. And I know somebody that would be really good at, for doing that. Um, but we need to pray that God would send people and then realize that when we pray that, he might. God will, may respond to that prayer by saying, okay, I'm going to send someone to reach your neighbor. I'm going to send you. Oh, I mean, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's not what I meant, God. I mean, you know, there's got to be someone else. Maybe the other side, the other side, there's a Christian. Um, but pray that God would send him. And when he calls, we need to answer that call. He uses the word laborer. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We live in a society that can look down on that word laborer sometimes. Hey, what do you do for your job? Uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a laborer. We have that idea. By the way, the word labor just means work. What does the word laborer point to? It points to the fact that something is hard. It's not easy. It's why they call it labor. I mean, just ask a woman that's about to have a baby. It's not easy. They, they use the word labor on her. Um, labor's not easy, and that's part of why there aren't enough laborers. Because it's labor. Because it takes effort. It takes energy. It takes dedication and commitment. It takes perseverance to push through. Sometimes people start to labor, and then the first thing they run up against, they ah, <laughs> maybe this just isn't for me, and they, you know, they fall away. The parable of the soils, we won't turn there, but Mark 4 talks about it. I think the parable of the soils explains part of why the laborers are few. Remember, there are four separate soils that the seed falls on. The two in the middle, I believe, are, are Christians. And one of them, it says that some fell on stony ground. And it points to the difficulty of the Christian life. That some heard the word, but when persecution would arise for the word's sake, uh, they'd fall away. They'd, they'd fall back a little bit because they're discouraged because it's so hard. So sometimes people are thinking about laboring in God's fields, but 
I mean, I tried it that one time and they put me in prison. That's not usually what it is. Usually it's, I tried it that one time and the guy, I was about to open my mouth for God and the guy looked at me like out of the side of his eyes and I was like, whoa, he's not going to like what I'm going to say. So I'm not going to say it. Sometimes it's just the, the hypothetical possibility that somebody's not going to listen is enough. But Jesus says one reason there aren't enough laborers is because we have too many stony ground Christians that when it's hard, we fall away. And then also he talks about thorny ground Christians among thorns, that the thorns grow up and choke the seed. It's a picture of the cares of this life. A lot of times the reason there aren't laborers in the field is because we are so full of everything else. I've got my schedule. I've got, um, hey, how about being a laborer for God? How long is it going to take? Let me see if I can fit you in my schedule. Nope. My schedule's totally full. Every hour of the day is accounted for. I'm so busy with vanity. <laughs> I've, and by the way, it's not all vanity, but the devil's really good at making the good the enemy of the best. He's really good at putting something that's even okay and wholesome as long as people don't hear the gospel, which is number one on God's agenda, which is why Jesus came to the earth. Jesus didn't come to the earth just so that we would spend time with our family. Jesus came to earth to save souls, and he wants us to be involved in it. But life is so good sometimes. Life is so bad, it, the, the persecution, but sometimes life is so good. I have so much money, what am I going to do with my money? Oh, I need to buy an RV and go use all my time, all my free time, camping out and enjoying and traveling and seeing the world, or whatever it may be. By the way, if you have an RV, I, I didn't have anyone here in mind. But whatever it may be. Hey, if the shoe fits. Um, but we, you know, I've got I've to exercise. I've got to work out my body. The, my body is a temple after all. So I don't have time to bring people to God because of my spiritual temple, you know. And whatever it may be, sometimes life is too hard to serve God. Sometimes life is too good and easy to serve God. We're distracted. We're discouraged. The bottom line is that Jesus says, the harvest is plenteous but the laborers are few. And so Jesus is lamenting that. He's saying that with an earshot of each one of his disciples. And he's saying to them, don't let it be because of you that there aren't enough laborers. Take on, you know, people are, uh, again, that, that word labor. Sometimes people uh, think, I don't want to be a laborer. I want to be an executive. <laughs> I want to be more like a CEO that calls the shots. I don't want to just be a common laborer. You know what we are in, in the harvest fields of God? We are common laborers. None of us are, we're not executives. There's nobody that's higher than anyone else. We're all to get down in the nitty gritty among the, the people of this world. Not, I'm not going to say the, the filth of the world in a way that looks down on people, but sometimes people look down on certain people as filth. We ought to never consider anybody filth. There's nobody that's lower than any one of us on the, on the face of the earth. And Jesus was willing to get down with sinners, even to be accused of being a you're a friend of sinners. He was willing to get right down there with them and call them to salvation. And that should be beneath none of us. We should embrace. It's better to be a laborer for the king of kings than to be a king on earth and to go to hell. Uh, it's a great privilege we have to be his laborer. Um, so I want to finish with this thought as I was, I entitled, by the way, the title of our message today is faith and faithfulness. So now we're going to get to our message where it's just a paragraph. We're just about done. When Jesus, when Jesus is looking, what, what Jesus is looking for in our lives is faith. We see all these, he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. I want you to grow in your faith. And he's also looking for faithfulness. You know, Jesus is not looking for Okay, who are we going to pick? Let's get the brightest and the most talented and the richest. That's not what he's looking for. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. He's looking for people that have faith. And then what's, what's the word faithfulness have to do with the word faith? How does that relate? I believe the word faithfulness means someone that can be dependable or relied upon. You could have faith in that person to do the right thing. If someone is faithful at their job, it means that you can have faith in them to be reliable at their job. Now, it is not that we're putting faith in man, but here's the, here's the connection. As we grow in faith, 
that will affect our faithfulness. The more I believe that God is real and the Bible is true and all of his promises are true, that's going to grow my faithfulness. Because if I don't believe that, for instance, um, so I, I've called the miracle section faith and then the laborers section I want to call faithfulness. That God wants people to be faithful to him and labor out in his fields. But if I don't believe that the Christian life is worth it, if, if that's, that's a faith issue. To believe that God is going to reward me for my labor and that it's going to be worth it and that I can advance the kingdom. If I don't believe that it's worth it, I'm not going to get, that, get out there and do it. It will help my faithfulness as I grow in my faith. So again, allow that snowball to grow in your life. That as you, you grow in your faith, it makes you more faithful. And then God blesses you because of your faithfulness and then you grow more in your faith. Um, but if you really believe that everything in the Bible is true, that is going to affect your actions. If you believe that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, that you'll be rewarded, that's going to motivate you to labor for God. But if you believe, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm all by myself down here. And I don't even think God sees. Uh, what's the use? I guess I'll give my life to serve God. You know, people, they're not going to draw that conclusion from, I don't think God sees. But when you, when you know for sure, I know it's all true. I know that that if I walk away from God, by the way, the same is true on the negative side. If I walk away from God, if I live in sin, if I reject the Holy Spirit in my life, I believe that consequences are going to come. Well, that's going to motivate me to stay with God. I don't want to jump off a cliff if I know I'm going to fall and hurt myself. So allow all the promise. This is what Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are about. If you follow God, he will bless you in unimaginable ways. But if you turn away from God, he will bring judgment on your life in unimaginable ways. And if we believe all of that, that's going to help our faithfulness. So when you, read, when you hear that truth that Jesus says, he, he, he's not necessarily pointing at one of the disciples. When he says it, he says it to all of them. But he wants them to receive that in their spirit. There's plenty of stuff that's ready to happen. But there aren't enough people doing it. And Jesus says, I just want to let, he says to his disciples, I want you to let that sink down into your spirit. There aren't enough people willing to be laborers. Is that, what if everyone labored just like me? What if everyone labored just like you? Because so, so many times we think, well, I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't have the time, but there's a lot of people that have plenty of time. I'm sure they'll do it. But what if all those people are thinking the same thing about me? If everybody labored like me, would anything be getting done? If everyone labored like you, would anything be getting done? And may we grow in our faith, whatever problem you have, I believe God can handle anything and allow that to, to catapult itself into your faithfulness. And may we be growing uh, as followers of Jesus. Let's close together in prayer.